My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello and welcome to the post-credit pod. Eric Italiano and I continuing our Star Wars deep dive in conjunction with our very fun weekly Mando recaps and reviews. Before we get to that today, we are looking back at the sequel trilogy of Star Wars films under Disney. This comes on the heels of us doing the original trilogy, and the prequel trilogy, be, be sure to go and download those pods before you jump into this one. Or jump into this one, then go do that one. I'm not your fucking dad. Do whatever you want. Uh, but before we get into the major Star Wars of it all today, some very cool news over the last few days. Number one is that Chris Pratt will be joining Thor in Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, Eric, now Thor 4 takes place before Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And we obviously saw Thor, Thor go off with the Guardians of the Galaxy at the end of Endgame. So I've been trying to piece together what kind of adventures do you think they're going to have together? Or do you think this is more of like, a, hey, Thor, we're dropping you off at your next adventure. See ya. Well, first things first, today is November 17th. Today is Martin Scorsese's 78th birthday. So I just want to give a quick shout out to him. As a fellow Italian-American, I can't even really quantify how much he has shaped my life, sort of. Eric, getting real for a second, I like that. Well, that's my fucking, dude, 78. It's getting up there. I mean, you know, Scorsese should have a happy birthday every day. I don't care if it is. Yeah. So back to films that he does not think are real (laughs) cinema. It depends. It sort of depends on how much longer Thor is going to be in the MCU, right? Because, like... He's going to be the first MCU character to get his fourth film, which is a big deal. I like to point out how in the Infinity Saga arc, those two films, he carries a lot of the dramatic weight Yeah. between dealing with the fact that he thought he was a god and getting his ass kicked by Thanos to then trying to pick himself back up to go get the axe made to kill him to then failing at that and dealing with the guilt and grief of that to, to get over his actual, I guess, PTSD uh, to come back and, you know, help in the fight. It's, they turned him in what was a entirely misplaced piece into what has been the centerpiece of the MCU for the last, I don't know, uh, Ragnarok came out 2017. So last three years, I think it's hard to sort of tell what to expect from this film if we don't know how much longer they're going to keep Thor himself around. Now, as we know, this is supposed to be passing the uh, hammer off to Natalie Portman, but does that mean that Chris Hemsworth Thor is not going to be in them anymore? Now, he has said he's down to play Thor for a long time moving forward. He has said that. Now, having said that, I think you'll probably see Natalie Portman get her own several films as quote-unquote Thor, and that will probably not leave a ton of room for Hemsworth, though I'm sure he'll be involved in some capacity. But that whole subplot of him passing the torch to Natalie Portman, that has to be a very 
significant part of the movie that's done really well, which is why I keep thinking that Chris Pratt's role and maybe any other cameos are not going to be that big because the crux of the movie has to be Hemsworth and Portman, right? To make that work. Yeah, I mean, if it's his last sort of... Leading role, maybe. Le- yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it'll almost certainly be the last Thor film, but will it be the last time he shows up in a major leading role way? If that's the case, then yes. I, I, I don't want any Chris Pratt in there. I mean, I'll take it, but you're totally right. They have to sort of not keep him on the sidelines, but not lean on him. They should use him how they used... Iron Man and uh, Homecoming. That's exactly how he should be used. Be in like three scenes and that's it. Because Thor is sort of the last vestige of the right of of the OG group. So Hawkeye is getting his own Disney Plus series, but that is not the same level of what we're talking about uh, here. Yeah, yeah. And you want to see somebody like that go on on a high. I mean, the title alone suggests that this film is going to have a epic scale, right? Love, Love and thunder. Like, you know, I mean. It's so 1980s cheesy, but because we know Taika Waititi is writing and directing, it feels perfect. Yeah. And that said, just last week, I watched Hunt for the Wilder People. And Great movie. he, while he could be a goofball, and as we've seen with films like that and Jojo Rabbit, he could be sentimental as hell. Yeah. So I totally trust him to send Thor off in the right way. How touching is Hunt for the Wilder People? It's just a quick side note. Yeah, great movie. Such a it, it can alternate between two main characters arguing over Sarah Connor in Terminator to like, oh my God, it's the best father-son story I've ever seen. And we just need Sam Neill and more stuff. Yeah, he's the man. He's, he's awesome in the first season of Peaky Blinders too. Just put him in more stuff, please. Sam Neill's uh, awesome. He's going to be in Jurassic World Dominion, which is, I, I don't like those movies, but I do think their little cameos right. are- Sure. So to loop back to what you asked me, what do I expect from Thor 4? I don't expect a, hey, you're, we're just going to drop you off here and have some fun. I expect a, especially since we have Christian Bale supposedly, supposedly playing the villain. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. There's no way Pratt has a big role in this. Right? I mean, but, but then again, there's, how do you take him out of it, right? If they're traveling together, they may be intrinsically tied. I genuinely think it might be like two like a buddy cop thing. Really funny. I think it might be two scenes really funny, and then they really do drop him off. Like I genuinely think that could be the case. Then why I mean, announce it now through the trade? That's a very good question. It, yeah, if it's just a fun, you know, surprise, I, I don't see why they would do that now. I, I, I think they saw that that buddy copness of them both trying to be alpha males, even though they both know who the real alpha dog is worked and i think they're gonna lean on that but do you see natalie portman's jane foster i don't know how the fuck they're gonna work her back in especially considering the last time that we saw this crew they just left earth no yeah they did leave Earth. so (laughs) look there's a lot of work to be done i have all the faith in the world that they'll pull it off but i guess my bottom line point is if this is it for thor I don't need any bells and whistles. I just need meat and potatoes. And that's yeah. it. I, I ultimately agree. And again, like one, they have Christian Bale and Natalie Portman. So I don't know where, where Pratt fits in. Number two, Jane Foster is the type of character who's not going to put up with Star-Lord's bullshit. And number three, like you said, there, there is such an important storyline going on. The passing of the torch, potentially setting up 
a new subset franchise for Portman, which is awesome because she's amazing. Like, I just don't see the shenanigans having such a big role. But on the reverse side of that coin, if it's not the end of the road for Thor, then I would love for this to be a sort of Avengers light team up film. That would be great. Why not? It'd be better if he passed it off to Natalie Portman and then she's in charge with like protecting the realm. And then they go on their like buddy cop where he's like, yo, I'm totally free of responsibility. 2,500 years. I've honestly like put everyone else's needs first. It's me time, baby. Like Guardians of the Galaxy, where's the party at? Right, right. So totally depends on the context of where Thor stands in his own journey. Because I'm if, sure we'll find out more. Plus, if Thor is, uh, if Hemsworth is down to keep playing him, I don't see why they would stop. Definitely so, not. Yeah. Now, last question before we move on to our next news story. I'm wondering if we should expect these larger cameos and crossovers in the quote-unquote solo MCU films moving forward. You know, because this is a post-Infinity Saga uh, uh, era where like a resetting of expectations and momentum is very fair you know they can't all be massive one billion dollar blockbusters i'm wondering if they're trying to compensate a little bit by being like okay so dr strange is going to have a couple spider-man 3 is going to have a couple and i see the benefits and the takeaways from that throw in the fact that hawkeye is supposed to pop up in black widow so you have yes you have four mcu films in the next year that are set to star more than one Avenger. And I think that's smart from them. Now that they've built up to something this big, you can't go back down, right? You have to continue. It has to keep getting bigger and bigger. So they can't go back down to an Ultron type threat now that they've dealt with Thanos, right? So for them to properly do these big scale team up films going forward, they're going to have to spread them out more and build up to them more. So in the meantime, I think we're going to find them doing stuff like this. What you mentioned, though, the fact that it has to keep getting bigger and bigger, that's just one drawback I do see of the Marvel Universe overall. Exponential growth. Exponential growth. There you go. That's good. They get bigger and bigger by adding more and more. More characters, more familiar faces, more cameos. It only expands along the y-axis and then i compare that to star wars which has this kind of limitless uh universe that can kind of do both where it can expand the scope without just shoving in more and more characters now getting into the multiverse and everything that's a great way to get up on that x-axis and change the formula a little bit that's what i want to see more of i don't want them to just do hey the more shit we toss into this one film the bigger it is you know so i'm glad that they're kind of moving away from that even if that still is a little bit too much of their bread and butter, uh, you know, we'll see. And, and right now it looks like Shang-Chi and Eternals are relatively standalone, which is cool. Now let's switch from Marvel to DC. To something we don't trust entirely. <laughs> yeah, there's, we, got, we got two stories here. First up today, ironically, as Martin Scorsese's birthday is today, is also the three-year anniversary of Justice League. And today, Zack Snyder released a new black and white trailer for his Snyder Cut HBO Max miniseries coming next year. I believe it's coming in March. They haven't announced it officially, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that that's what the case is going to be. Um, so rumors continue to abound behind the scenes that the Snyder Cut is only going to add about four to five minutes of new scenes, quote unquote. But apparently that new scene is the Joker killing the old Robin that we know is dead from Batman v, v Superman. You know me. I am so down on the Snyder Cut. I'm so 
don't care, so over it. I'm obviously going to watch it, but I just wish this was all over with. And today I tweeted, I cannot wait to the day we don't have to talk about Justice League anymore. But I will say I am morbidly curious about the kind of background Batman story that they're preparing. That is one element that I'm like, okay, I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we did talk about this very thing on this podcast, how uh, when they first announced that Deathstroke and Joker were going to come back, we said that that told us that they're going to be giving us something Batman-esque that they had meant to give us the first time. The key here, right, is that it's being broken up into four parts. If they were just trying to log jam this into one film, that would be a problem. But now they've got the they've got the runway to build in things like this because each part is going to have its own arc, right? At the end of the day, it is a mini series. It's not it, it's not a film. And so it's going to be cut in that same way. The Joker thing is difficult because most people with a brain, and I'm sorry if you happen to like Leto's Joker, but most people understand that it is not good. In fact, it's annoying. So him coming back in and of itself is not what I wanted. But as I've said on this podcast, I am not against the idea of people in life getting a new chance. And to see the vision that was teased, like, it's sort of like, when you find like $5 in a pocket, like, all right, it's not a lot, but am I going to complain that I found it? No, no. So, (laughs) you know, whatever. All right, sweet. Cool. Five bucks. Um, So that's sort of how I see this in a weird way. Like, That's fair. And I just looked it up. Zack Snyder has never written or directed for television. And I understand that this is not quite television, but as a miniseries, it is episodic entertainment. So I'm wondering... Does this unlock the next level of Zack Snyder or is this <laughs> as relatively average as, you know, I've come to expect? I Again, don't know. We've said our hopes for it aren't high. Like I wouldn't say uh, my hopes for it are high, but it doesn't have to be good for me to enjoy it per se. It, it just has, has to be better than theatrical Justice League. And, yes. And it has to fulfill the vision and the story that began with those first two films and them giving us, For the first time, by the way, this Batman and this Joker facing off in what is perhaps one of the most iconic Batman lore moments of all time. Now, in this cut, the Robin that got killed is Dick Grayson. But in the comic books, it was a character named Jason Todd, who fans voted to have killed. So this, this this is a stalwart of sort of, Batman lore. So to see this unfold on film with a Batman that most people quite enjoy and a particularly dark killing Batman, which is something that you and I have railed on, this is going to add context to all of that. And for me, look, if Warner Bros. wants to piss away $70 million to give me more Batman stuff, I'm game. And that's where I still stand. Now, Snyder seems to be, as I said to you in a text, getting high on his own <laughs> own supply. I mean, this black and white shit is absurd. We're talking about a comic book movie. Comic books are literally synonymous <laughs> with being colorful as fuck. Super colorful. I, I saw a tweet today that was, uh, it basically said, 
not only is the new Justice League trailer joyless, it's also colorless. <laughs> I thought it was very, like, love or hate it. I, I understand there's a lot of supporters, but that's a funny tweet. So it's like, all right, let's reel it back in, man. Come on now. But uh, you're happy about Batman stuff. Yeah, and at the end of the day, the bottom line for me, and again, I don't expect the rest of it to be as shitty. So if we're... <laughs> If we're foreseeing that it will at least clear the bar of not being a pile of shit and adding iconic Batman stuff, sure. Why not, Zach? Thank you. Morbidly curious about Robin's death, but you know what the kind of grading curve lands for me, the make it or break it? If they give me some really cool live action dark side stuff, I will be very forgiving of everything else. If it's clownish, then I'm going to be like, you know what? Just like I said from the jump, this was a terrible idea and a waste of money. But if they give me just some something that feels like the uh, Justice League animated series with, with those dark side and apocalypse storylines, I'll be like, you know what? I got my jollies. Got my rocks off on that. Yeah, and I think we will, so. Hopefully. Now, sticking with Batman, today it was reported that Terrence Winter who did Boardwalk Empire and Vinyl for HBO, has exited the Batman prequel spinoff at HBO Max as a writer, executive producer, and showrunner due to creative differences with Matt Reeves and the rest of the creative team. Now, to me, even though Vinyl was terrible, Boardwalk Empire was a, was a really solid, good, maybe never great, but really good drama at HBO. I think Winter is a talented writer. He, he helped co-write... Uh, Wolf of Wall Street and a ton of other Martin Scorsese features. I think it's a bad sign that he left this early in production. And I think he could have been a big reason why the spinoff was able to elevate beyond mere superhero schlock. Uh, Having said that, Matt Reeves clearly has a very defined vision for this show. And I still feel confident it can be good moving forward since he's taking an active development role. He's not just slapping his name on it and, you know, moving on. Right. So, so that's my reaction. There's good, there's good and there's bad. So my point is sort of the same. I would be concerned if it came out that he had, that he had left because of creative differences with like HBO execs, right? But the fact that it's with Matt Reeves, the auteur behind this entire Batman vision, that's not really a bad sign. I mean, look, would I have preferred him to be a, a part of the show? Of course. But it doesn't spell doomsday for me. At that same time. Uh, no pun intended? Mm, no, pun intended. I like that. Now, I have I wrote an article today for Observer. Check it out, Observer.com. Shameless plug, shameless plug. About which showrunners I think could replace him. Now, I have no idea if these people are even interested, nor do I have any idea if some of their overall deals with other companies would even permit them to work on it. But I'm just going to run through six and and the shows you might know him from. Amy Berg, Counterpart with J.K. Simmons, really underrated spy espionage sci-fi show. Uh, Ronald D. Moore, famous for Battlestar Galactica, currently working on uh, season two of Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind. Sam Esmail, Mr. Robot creator, homecoming director. Uh, Noah Hawley, Fargo and Legion. You and I both really like that guy. Misha Green, who did uh, showrunner for HBO's Lovecraft Country, which I didn't love, but was a huge commercial hit for them. And then Taylor Sheridan, who created uh, the massively popular Yellowstone and who wrote some bangers of screenplays like Sicario, like Hell or High Water. He also wrote um, Michael B. Jordan's upcoming Without Remorse action flick. So those were just six names I wrote about today 
that I think would be capable replacements and be able to work well with Matt Reeves. I'm surprised you didn't include our boy Damon Lindelof. So Damon Lindelof, I did think about it, but I, I think genuinely he needs to be in charge of his own project, not kind of breathing life into Matt Reeves's project. You yeah. know, he, he's probably the premier showrunner in the game right now. Oh, really? You think so? I, I mean, from Lost and, and Watchmen and The Leftovers, yeah, I, I think this guy is wow top tier. So I don't necessarily know if he's walking into somebody else's vision. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right, I just thought, like, all right, who's done – a comic book show who's done a police show who's worked with HBO in the past. I was like, Oh, our boy. Listen, I would love it. If Damon Lindelof was announced. I, I just don't see that happening. Oh, right no shot. Do you have any uh, guys you want in? Damon. <laughs> Damon. I told you. All right. Well then there you go. That's cool. Yeah. That'd be great. All right. So we'll see what happens. Well, it's like imagine him getting his hands on Batman villains. Yeah, listen, I would love it. I don't uh, think – yeah, I mean, that would be super ideal. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would instantly become one of my most anticipated shows instead of, like, this seems interesting, but, you know, I'm not, like, over right. the hill about it. Right. All right, well, that's enough comic book stuff. Because we're adults, we're going to move on to fake <laughs> space stuff now. How about that? <laughs> the Star Wars sequel, sequel trilogy, Eric, and I've been excited to tackle this trilogy with you for some time because you and I – have both similar and completely differing opinions in different ways. I say before we jump right into our awards and categories, we, we run through them film by film of these three and just do a quick little overview of what our, our opinions and feelings are. How does that sound? Please, by all means. All right, so for The Force Awakens, I think it did a great job of establishing what I have now come to consider and written about for Observer, a golden rule of legacy sequels. And that is creating a really compelling cast of new heroes, a new generation of characters to pass the torch to <clears throat> while using the original heroes sparingly and effectively. Uh, I think it does a great job of using Leia and Han as these kind of mentor figures and really cleverly leaves out Luke entirely because he would have sucked up all the oxygen in every scene he was in and really not given any room for these new characters who I absolutely love, especially at the time of release when we didn't know what was coming. Uh, you know, they wouldn't get the focus and shine they deserve. Now, having said that, and as we've discussed in text this week, I think The Force Awakens gets retroactively worse with the releases of the other sequel trilogy movies. Not only was it kind of a regurgitation of A New Hope, which was a common complaint at the time, but the kind of diminishing returns of what came after and the disparate uh, plot threads that either do or do not get picked up on whatsoever make it kind of this whole hodgepodge mess of narratives uh, so at the end of the day, while I greatly enjoy The Force Awakens and, and was pretty thrilled with it at the time, it has lowered in my rankings of Disney-era Star Wars films that include the spinoffs. So I think you make a great point about how it's gotten worse now that you've known where it's going. And I think that that is the biggest indictment of these films is that in a vacuum, each of them are not that bad. But when you're given context whether it's what came before or what's going to come, they become infinitely worse. So, per se, I used to think that this one was not that bad. 
but that's because I didn't understand the complaints that it was just a carbon copy ripoff of a new hope. Once I further became aware of a new hope and its plot lines and themes and even literal scenes, and then saw how much they repurposed that into this film, it's just blatant commercialism, right? They're trying to manufacture the magic that Star Wars was. And that is not how you create magic by in a in a box. Box. Sorry, I just cannot hear that word. That. The cast is charming. Great, as you said. But they're forced into moments that don't that that don't develop as a result of good screenwriting. They are engineered. And I get that that's what films are, but this feels so blatant and in your face that it's almost offensive, even as a non-Star Wars guy. Like, I could only imagine if I was, like, 50, right, and being a fan of it when I was younger and then being so souped up for these and then being like, wait a minute, you just gave me back the same shit you sold me 30 years ago? And that, to me, is shallow. It's hollow. And that is sort of the opposite of what Star Wars was, right? It was the B-film that could. It was against all odds, all of the pieces fell right into place, despite how much I don't even really love the originals. I appreciate the magic of them. And Disney's leech-like attempt <laughs> to suck the dollars out of this franchise is shameful. And they should have, and while I understand them wanting to connect the first three films, they would have been better off if they just started fresh. The biggest thing that I took away from this rewatch is that when it's not beholding itself to its past is when it's at its strongest. But The Force Awakens is literally its past reincarnate. And that's a problem. No, I think it's true, and we'll get to this on the next movie, that Freed from the Shackles of the Past is probably when it does its best work. But I'm not quite as harsh on The Force Awakens as you. I get where you're coming from, yet I still think the new characters are such quality uh, creations that do represent a few new wrinkles, uh, such specifically talking about uh, Adam Driver's Kylo Ren and John Boyega's Finn. Remember at the time before we knew where some of their storylines were going, that it did a great job of balancing homage to the old one, old movies while creating new storylines and characters that I found compelling for wholly different reasons. I'll say this. It's first trailer, which I like to talk about a lot on this show, is an absolute ripper. The dark side. A Jedi. It's calling to you. And it's kind of because of what you're saying, right? They did a great job of teasing it. In a vacuum, it was dope. But once you were given the context of it is when it all sort of unravels. I think Ray is a great character, but she obviously is very closely aligned with the original Luke Skywalker archetype. And then I think clearly the uh, Starkiller base is just the most unimaginative reimagining of uh, the Death Star. So 
those are the two elements I think that, that get the most. They literally action. show them side by side. They're yeah. like, the Death Star is this big. The Starkiller base is this big. <laughs> That's just like, dude, come on, man. Like, those are the weak pretending. Yeah. Now, moving on to The Last Jedi, I said this the moment the movie ended to the friends and my girlfriend at the time who, who I was with when, when I saw it, and I still stand by it to this day. The Last Jedi's highs are higher than The Force Awakens, but its lows are lower. I love everything Ryan Johnson does with Ray, Kylo, and Luke, which is blasphemy to some corners of the fanboy baby in the basement, uh, you know, Star Wars supporters, who I don't even know if I'd call supporters. I, I think freeing the franchise from 40 years of Jedi mythology and established canon was brilliant because it was a bold storytelling move that directly linked with the character development of those three characters in very compelling ways that we hadn't seen before. I think everything with Luke's transformation was fascinating. I would never expect a 60-year-old who's seen war and genocide and, and regimes fall to be the same as he was when he was a you know, 25, 30-year-old. And I think it enabled and set up the franchise to move in bold, creative new directions that really would have reinvigorated long-term storytelling with Star Wars. Obviously that didn't come to pass, but again, at the time we didn't know that. Now its lows were definitely lower. I've seen some very intelligent, eloquent defenses of the Rose and Finn storylines on Canto Bite, but ultimately they are such a distraction to me from this, the uh, central plot at hand and so uncompelling that it's hard for me to truly love The Last Jedi, even though I think its ambition and its intelligence far surpassed The Force Awakens. At the end of the day, I prefer the consistency of The Force Awakens to The Last Jedi, again, even though its reach and its scope were so much more impressive and so much more satisfying because it was unafraid to tell a new story and it was unafraid to burn everything down literally. So we would stop all this hero worship and see this character and this flawed institution for what they really were. And, and so I, while I appreciate the hell at The Last Jedi, it's tough for me to move past its, you know, 40% of the movie flawed. It's tough because while this remains my favorite of the three, as I did rewatch, I do agree that it's lows. It bottoms out so low. And... I wonder if that's even the fault of Ryan Johnson or if it's the fault of Disney or whose fault. I want to go on record here saying I love Ryan Johnson. Brick, Looper, Knives Out. Like, I think he's one of the most talented creative voices in Hollywood. Same. Same. But that doesn't mean he's not at fault here. Oh, no, no. Of of course. I just want to, like, I think expressing how much I love Ryan Johnson actually makes my criticism of the film uh, more thoughtful. Right. And for him, I mean, and what I said to you in a text is that there are very unique renderings of things we've seen a thousand times, whether it's a shot of an X-Wing pulling up to a destroyer or Kylo Ren speeding in his swing ship. He gave us new looks at the start, or there's that famous Holdo uh, ship bursting thing where I, at the time, some theaters had to put a sign on their door warning people to say that that was meant to be in in a film because it was so incongruent with what they've come to know from a star wars film 
people thought the sound cut out in their theaters. They're like, no, that was by design, you morons. And for me, that's great. All that stuff works for me. But there's some, there are some packaged lines. There are some bizarre choices. Uh, you know, the famous whatever blue drink that uh, Luke drinks from the teat of that Didn't animal. seem necessary. What? Yeah. Like, just, at no point was anyone like, this is a little odd. There are multiple cringe-worthy quotes. But that said, this third act, the last, I don't know, hour and a half, is as propulsive as I've ever seen Star Wars films. I love the throne room fight scene. I don't understand why people... We're going to get back to that one for sure. Yeah, I don't understand why people hate it. Who hates the throne room fight scene? Because unfollow... I see it everywhere, yeah. I see it. I enjoy Luke's return and Luke's general arc. How... Um, you know, I think it's probably the best work that Mark Hamill has done as Luke. I um, liken that role with Mark Hamill as uh, to Sylvester Stallone in Creed too. You know, an, a, an older actor who everyone loves, but maybe wasn't necessarily the greatest live action actor in the world, putting in some career best work. Yeah, for sure. So I enjoyed the gravitas of his return, how everybody's looking at him like they're seeing a living legend, right? Like that is the sort of weight that i want luke to have when he walks through a room and he has that they fucking nail it and he and demystifies his, his own legend which i think is such a great inversion of our expectations and, and what storytelling so we'll get in into luke more when we go through this i enjoy the like the sort of uh the pod racing on not pod racing but on yeah. crate with that red salt and their attack and the beautiful shot of the walkers coming down the skyline i mean look yeah, I will say that this third act is how I want my Star Wars to be. So I am willing to ignore, oh, and we didn't even mention the Leia flying through space with the Force thing, which is just abysmal to me. Absolutely abysmal. And I'm sure Star Wars fans are even more passionately against that scene. It's but, unintentionally hilarious. But even, even all of that aside, its third act is so good both in terms of third act straight up action and thematic endings, bringing storylines full circle to an end is as strong as Star Wars has been in my lifetime, which is something I only say about Rogue One. But I hold the third act of this film is up there with some of my favorite Star Wars of all time. Now, you mentioned the thematics and ultimately I think The Last Jedi comes down to its very title, The Last Jedi. Don't continue clinging to the past and the flawed systemic institutions that led us to our current terrible present. Create something new for yourself and move beyond our teachings and our ways that maybe were idealistic, but clearly ineffective in the grand scheme of the galaxy. And then that is completely and utterly done by the very title of the next movie, The Rise of Skywalker. Luke's entire point was don't be like me. Don't be like us, the Jedi as a whole. Be something new. Be something better and learn from where we went wrong. And then The Rise of Skywalker, which we can now touch on. Which hold on. Which hold on. As you like to point about the Jedi in the prequels all the time, they are directly at fault for multiple things that went Horrible. wrong. So the theme of, look, stay true to our teachings, 
but grow and learn is a great message. And the fact that fans had such an aggressive response to that just shows the entitlement that Star Wars fans and comic book fans and passionate fans as a whole think that they have. I agree completely. And, and we'll probably get some flack for this, but in my opinion, Star Wars fans have surpassed DC fans in my experience online as the most toxic and hostile fan base. The poor girl, uh, Kelly Marie Tran had to get off. Yeah. I mean, it's just obscene. So it's just heinous. And, and listen, Guys, I have been excited, more excited for movies than most of you. I made a career out of movies. So when something lets me down, of course I'm disappointed, but I don't act like I had any say in how the movie went or, or that my entire world has fallen and now I'm entitled to attack people for their beliefs and opinions and their contributions. Well, so and they, you see that widespread. And they pay for those sins with the uh, final product. Now to me, and, and I, I wrote what I thought was a very even-handed kind of review and reaction to Rise of Skywalker when, no, I'm serious, when, when I got out of my screening. And that was ultimately that fan expectations were the undoing of the Star Wars sequel trilogy. And that, like you've said, in a vacuum, things can be quite enjoyed more so than they are in the greater context of, of the Star Wars conversation. And uh, I highly recommend everybody check that out on Observer.com. Shameless plug. But what my thoughts are is that Rise of Skywalker works just fine as a swashbuckling space adventure on its own. But when you pull back and look at the holistic Star Wars saga, it is a terribly disappointing conclusion to the entire franchise. It gives you such horrible whiplash in terms of narrative and tone because of the film-to-film swings within the sequel trilogy it retroactively undoes many of the best plot points in The Last Jedi, such as Rey being no one instead of her being connected to yet another important lineage. Uh, If we're going to get into the nitty-gritty micro just right off the bat, they literally never explain how Palpatine came back or what the fuck Snoke was. They're just like, "Mm, dark magic cloning. Mm." Like, I I need more than that. Poe Dameron literally says, word for word, Palpatine figured out a way to come back somehow. And that's (laughs) it. Just washes his hands after that. Not a single person there, not Leia, not John Boyega, is like, oh, excuse me, can you explain that just a little bit further? Do you mean the guy who was a frail old man who blew up in a nuclear thermonuclear explosion a couple years ago? Like, I don't think that guy came back. So... That's a mix of my macro complaints about Rise of Skywalker and my micro complaints. Again, I still can find quite a bit of enjoyment in it. I still think there are these great humorous moments and some really fun set action set pieces. But in terms of answering the questions we needed answered and wrapping up the biggest film franchise in American history, major, major disappointment. This goes off the rails from the... <laughs> From the first moment when the title card starts to scroll and the first line is, the dead speak. I kid you not, Brandon. As soon as I saw that in theaters, I thought to myself, we are fucked. (laughs) They are doing so much narrative hand-waving in the, what's the thing called? There's a word for it. 
Yeah, hand waving. That's right. No, 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 no. The scroll down thingy. Uh, the opening crawl. Yeah, the crawl, the crawl, the crawl. Yeah. They do such a seismic leap in the first sentence of the crawl. Oh, Palpatine's back. Remember him? He's back. That I wrote down, and, and while I'm laughing, and this is a joke, kind of, it's a serious point. We need to know at what point did they theorize and make the choice to bring him back? Had Palp, and this leads back to my point that in a vacuum, it works. When Ray vanquishes him and the voice of all the Jedi past speak to her, in a vacuum, that works. Surrounds you, Ray. Feel the force flowing through you. But given the context and the lack of build-up towards it, it had no dramatic weight to it because we weren't invested in Palpatine's return and rise and all that. So my number one question to you is: at what stage did they decide to do this? Why didn't they do it sooner? Did Disney not plan the three film arc before they started to make them? So we're, we're going to leave the, the Disney planning for, for later in our awards and categories conversation. We'll get to that because there's, there's a lot to be said. Um, I, I, there are very many rumors and theories and hearsay and chatter for behind the scenes development of this sequel trilogy. And one of those points, which I cannot confirm, which no one can really confirm unless you're in the room, is that Snoke wasn't initially supposed to die. And that Ryan Johnson was like, you know what? I have a, an interesting idea that's unexpected. And that in the moment, I think works. Pulled back on the macro for a three film arc led to a very complicated antagonist situation. I think perhaps my theory is that once Snoke was killed and wasn't necessarily part of the plan, J.J. Abrams decided to bring Palpatine back to fill that void. I will say, uh, remember the first trailer is released for Rise of Skywalker and you hear Palpatine's laugh. And that's the first time any of us ever learned that he was going to be in the movie. I said, wow, that's really cool because they're bringing back this iconic bad guy who kind of started it all. My friend, who's the biggest Star Wars fans I, fan I know besides me, he said, I promise you. This was months, a year before the movie came out. He goes, I promise you, this is going to be stupid and dumb and it's going to suck which was not a very eloquent explanation and yet was so goddamn right that I should have understood kind of the bit larger point he was trying to make. It is so ridiculous how it's handled. And I cannot believe this is a professional screenplay that they were just like, hey. Chris Terrio, that son of a bitch. Chris Terrio, man, right out the gate with Argo and then just Batman v Superman. This, uh, another one that I can't remember. Justice League, I think. Yeah, Justice League, I think. Like, just so many disappointing screenplays. So we'll talk a little bit more and really expand on what the the behind-the-scenes situation was as we get deeper into this pod, but oof. Let me point this out. We go to two different locales before a single line is spoken. 
Oh my Think God. Think about it's that. Such, it's such a ham-fisted intro in which he has to go to one place to get to another place to get to a MacGuffin that leads to a second MacGuffin. It is simply just throat-clearing, ball-scratching nonsense for like the first 30% of the film. And then I will even go, and I won't say as far, because I don't think this is not a bad opinion, but one that will rub the hardcore Star Wars fans the wrong way. Just like the way that they tried to shoehorn in Palpatine, the way that they tried to shoehorn in Leia is equally detrimental to this film, because you could tell that they- I'm not gonna hold that one against them though. They couldn't just ignore that, like, her character plays a role. I I just don't think they could have been like, hey, she died off screen. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. But I just feel like it's so obvious that they retroactively built a plot around scenes that they had that they didn't even want to use the last time. It It doesn't make for the strongest story points, but I, I think that was making the best of an impossible situation when the original plan, uh, which was, which was, uh, confirmed by Lucasfilm people was for uh, Leia and Kylo Ren to have a face-to-face heart-to-heart that really pushed him back to the light. Like that was always the plan. And obviously that was no longer possible. Fair enough. All right. You want to hop into these awards and categories now that we've kind of done our brief overview. People have an idea of how we feel and where we stand. I think this helps maybe specify some of those stances. Well, and let me just tack on at the end here. This last rewatch I did of Rise of Skywalker actually improved my thoughts of it. I'm now of the thought that it's no better or worse than The Force Awakens. Wow. That's, that's high praise because it's definitely not on The Force Awakens level for me. <laughs> All right, let's go to the real MVP award to start off. As the name suggests, I think this is the, the best character in terms of the, the whole film. You can choose something that's not a character. I'm going with a character, and I would say that's Adam Driver and Kylo Ren, who to me was the most consistently interesting character across the sequel trilogy. Uh, Lucasfilm failed to properly flesh out why he initially turned to the dark side, but I believe his struggle between good and evil, his developing relationship with Rey, his inner familial turmoil with, with Han Solo and his own legacy to Darth Vader, and Driver's top-tier acting consistently made him the most compelling presence and element on screen. Uh, you know, like I said, in The Force Awakens, the origins and the roots of the new characters were all extremely promising. And I think the character that experienced the least drop-off in potential and quality is Adam Driver's Kylo Ren throughout all three films. And that's where it becomes like a bummer, right? And again, as we've said a few times, his turn to the light is not that bad. Pretty good. But because there's so little groundwork to actually get there, it falls hollow and on deaf ears. If the multiverse is real, all three of these films feel like they came from their own universe, right? One came from Earth 1, one came from Earth 2, and one came from Earth 3. They're all connected, but not really. And that's sort of the problem with each of them. So to build on that point, this is usually the easiest one to give out, right? The MVP. Who's the best here? In this case, I found it kind of hard. So I'm going with Rogue One because fuck <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I should have seen that coming. You know what? I should have seen that because coming. Because fuck it. That's why. Because as you said to me this week, this rewatch only reaffirms how much Rogue One slaps. 
And it is all the more impressive that they pulled that off with the actual pressure of tying in Darth Vader and the original Star Wars tale. And with all the behind the scenes chaos that movie did go through on its own. Exactly. That movie is, I mean, seeing where they've gone since and how the films now look from a higher point of view, Rogue One, man. God bless them. <laughs> I, I will say back to your point, uh, I wouldn't, I didn't find Kylo Ren's arc hollow, his turn to the good side. I actually thought that was pretty earned, but because we don't- uh uh-uh, hold on. At the beginning of this film, he's tearing through people with the sole intent of controlling the universe. And by the end of the film, he's now a tear-shedding good guy. I don't fucking buy that for a second. The pacing of the arc, while they may have tried to lay the groundwork, the pacing of it is so backloaded in that third film that it just does not work for me. I think what doesn't work most of all is that they didn't explore further the origins of why he turned to the dark side at first. You know, Luke's just like, I sense the dark side growing in him. And I understand that conflict with Luke, which was actually quite beautiful and tragic. This person that he, that he trusted and loved who betrayed him in that moment. But why was he initially turning to the dark? We needed more information on that. Now, to your point about the, the pacing and everything, I think actually even Rise of Skywalker's, but the whole trilogy does a great job of never positioning Kylo Ren as a redeemed character, yet a for, but a forgiven character. I think in Force Awakens, you are directly involved with the mass genocide of five planets. You don't get redemption, not even remotely. You know, he, he was the second in command to a regime that killed 25 billion people, maybe. No, you don't come back from that. But through his actions, through his revealing his true self to the other characters, through his connection with Rey, she could forgive him and understand that this was a man who never understood quite who he was and where he belonged and which master he should serve in, in life. And I don't mean that in the sense of individuals, but in the sense of ideology. Uh, and so I, I thought the movies did a good job of never redeeming him, but allowing a, a central character to forgive him or, or at least put, put that to bed. So I thought that was kind of nice. All right, so that's the best. Jar Jar Binks award for the film's worst performance. Uh, for me, and, and we'll expand a little bit on what we were just saying, my worst performance is Lucasfilm as a whole here. They were simply far too reactive to the general uh, public's per- reactions and opinions, which resulted in these tonal and narrative shifts across the spectrum that we've described that are, are truly jarring. And to your, to your answer before, there was, generally speaking, a lack of an overarching plan from the beginning that was really difficult. So the idea was J.J. Abrams would set up an overarching story with, uh, with this kind of thrust that was The Force Awakens, and he had general notes and everything. But Ryan Johnson was allowed to do whatever he wanted, as was Colin Trevorrow, who was hired for, initially hired for the third film. So it was really very much a film-by-film basis instead of a well-thought-out overarching plan that still allowed for flexibility and organic change when called for. But no, they did not have an entire story mapped out, and it clearly hurt the execution of this three-film arc. Uh, Because as we saw, each director should be able to have a lot of control over where the story goes. 
but he can't contradict what came before. So that was a big problem. And then kind of the other side of that coin, and I still think Lucasfilm is a well-run organization overall, but the hiring practices are deserving of skepticism. Uh, you know, Colin Trevorrow, again, hired for episode nine, obviously was fired after the Book of Henry just absolutely tanked and Lucasfilm wanted to go in another direction. That led them to bring J.J. Oh, what? Yeah, you didn't know this? The Book of Henry? What the hell is that? You never saw that movie or even heard of it? It's, it's awful. It, listen, long story short, it's just- and that's why he lost the job? So, uh, of course, because Lucasfilm's a professional organization, they allowed him to say that he, you know, walked away over creative differences, and, and that's like a, a saving face move. But yeah, he, he was, you know, punted. And, and you've seen a lot of hirings and firings behind the scenes for a lot of other Disney-era Star Wars projects. So it, it, there's some chaos behind the scenes that hasn't always contributed to a fruitful ecosystem of creative discovery. Um, now, again, I don't think the sequel trilogy is as disastrous as some no-life nerds on the internet want to paint it as, but, you know, some more cohesive, longer-term strategy would have resulted in a better trilogy. All right, the Han Solo Award for Best Performance from a Non-Force User. I'm going to guarantee we have the same exact answer. Uh, okay. Shoot. John Boyega as Finn. He is a clear standout talent as an actor. You know, drama, comedy, actors, uh, accents. He's definitely got the movie star charisma. He's given more to do than Poe Dameron, who Oscar Isaac obviously has uh, uh, movie star charisma. I want to see Boyega in like a million things moving forward. Now, but my question is here, why did they let Daisy Ridley keep her British voice, but John Boyega had to change his? I find that so odd. So apparently, I th this is me connecting dots. I, I don't know if this is 100% true, but I think Finn was always supposed to have an American accent because Jesse Plemons reportedly auditioned for a role in Star Wars. And to me, the only one that makes sense for Jesse Plemons is, is a Finn type of character so this is me connecting dots i, I don't know if it's 100 percent true but i think it makes sense i just found that strange i was like why did they make him change his voice and not her he's um, good he's got a great american accent. great great accent so he's yeah he's a star we need and just him as a general human being he seems like the absolute fucking man the man and this is a really talented guy and i want to yep. see whatever he does please put him in more stuff so yeah, John Boyega, you're the man, dude, if you're listening to this. Uh, how about the Anywhere But Earth Favorite Planet or Locale Award? Uh, for me, you had mentioned it earlier, Crate. It is the coolest planetary creation in the sequel trilogy. You know, the mineral planet covered in the white salt, but that, that covers the red crystals beneath. It looks absolutely beautiful when those skippers are darting across the surface, kicking up all the red dust and everything. I mean, that is just a gorgeous visual. Crate is my B choice, but my A choice is Maz Katana's bar on Taco Donna. I would like to get messed up there. What a beautiful place that is. The planet where Ray is like, that's her first time off uh, wherever the fuck she's from. Jakku. Right. She's like, I didn't know that there was this much green, which is like a very nice line, but the yeah. planet looks gorgeous. The bar looks like a great time. Um, I would, yeah, I would love to just crush some ales with the boys there. 
All right, well, that's very fair. In that case, we will move on to the next category, the May the Force Be With You Award for the best line of dialogue. This is a tough one because there's not many. For the first time ever, I think I have more than one answer because I usually don't. So as uh, most of mine, this is from The Last Jedi where Luke says, Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. The rebellion is reborn today. The war is just beginning. And I will not be the last Jedi. Oh, that shit hits in a three film arc that I think, as I said at the top, tries to engineer moments of awe more than it does putting the groundwork to earn it. This Luke arc earns it for me because it brings him full circle. When Rey meets him, he's saying, we got to burn the texts. The Jedi are done. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. But he re- finds the hope ipso facto the magic of star wars within himself comes full circle to understand that the jedi must continue to exist and it is up to him to save their asses and make sure that that is going to be the case but in a new iteration which i appreciate and it's powerful stuff it is the dramatic high point of the film and hamill nails it yeah And I am someone who reveres Luke Skywalker and loves the original trilogy. And I could not for the life of me understand why crybaby fanboys were so up in arms with this depiction. They don't understand what is good. They only understand what they want, right? So they don't understand the dramatic implications of a iconic character coming full circle to realize that he himself, this iconic hero, was wrong. And now he alone has to write that. That is a super powerful idea. He is coping with the fact of not only does he realize he was wrong, his mind goes to, if I had just sucked it up for the last 30 years, would we have been in this place? Who knows how much help he could have given? But that doesn't matter to him at that point. All that matters to him is what he could do to help the resistance in that moment. And that is Luke's Skywalker to a T. Seeing a Luke Skywalker 30 years later act and be the exact same as he was as a young swashbuckling Jedi is not interesting to me, nor do I believe it follows the path of normal human personality development. And to your credit That's of a coming, great point. Yeah. And to your to your point of coming full full circle, I believe one of my quotes represents exactly what you just said about Luke to another character as well. And and this is why we find these older versions quite compelling. Uh, So my first one is by Han Solo in The Force Awakens. I wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo jumbo. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. Kid, I've flown from one side of this galaxy to the other. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field controls my destiny. Crazy thing is, it's true. All of it. The force, the Jedi. It's all true. 
Now that is such an amazing turnaround for Han Solo, who, as we know, famously disregarded the hokey religion and the idea of something greater than himself, than ourselves. So to see him embrace the truth, to see him accept the force and this grand unifying power of the universe and to see that within the context of the first star wars trailer was so unbelievably moving and beautiful and a massive hat tip to the character development that han solo has undergone over all these years and i think that fits in beautifully with exactly what you just said so so eloquently and so accurately about luke as well yeah it's the same exact thing so that's that's my number one. Um, my number two, and this is just this is just the classic line. I think the greatest teacher failure is Yoda in the Last Jedi. I mean, it's just a really really accurate fact of life. Failure is the best teacher, delivered pitch perfectly by our backward backward syntax guru Yoda. It's the rare piece of fantasy mumbo jumbo bullshit. That is 100% true in real life. So I think it embodied the themes of The Last Jedi. It connected it to the prequel era and, and the hubris of the Jedi basically serving as their downfall. And again, helped pave the way for what could potentially be a new era of Star Wars, no longer beholden to the lore and mythology of 40 years of films and canon material and that sense of freedom and newness and striking out new directions and embracing new ideologies could have been truly special. I still think freed from the shackles of having to be a saga film, Ryan Johnson could have given us a great trilogy of original Star Wars movies. All right, so those are the best lines of dialogues in our opinion. Now, how about the Rewind That Real Quick Award, which goes to any element, any scene, any line, whatever, that you think deserves a second look. To me, this is the throne room scene, and we touched on it. We have the same one. Boom. And it's, it's no reason why it shouldn't be this, because The Last Jedi is the only Star Wars movie, the only Star Wars saga movie, not to feature a lightsaber v. lightsaber duel. But that didn't matter whatsoever because the scene is set up and then executed so incredibly well, not only from a technical action standpoint, but from a character standpoint. There is great fight choreography. There is great moments and choices that redefine the journey of these two central characters. There's incredible aesthetic design and character design at play with the red Imperials, the black of the star base, their individual costumes. It's all very poetic to me and just scintillating action first and foremost. And now those are the first time that we've seen those red guard dudes fighting, correct? Because uh, fighting, they get their ass kicked the in the prequels. Oh, do they? Well, he, he's, those are the two guys that Yoda throws that you mentioned in our prequel rewind, but oh, they weren't fighting. Right, right. That's a great point you made. I didn't realize that this was the only non-lightsaber v. saber film because this scene feels like that to me as i talk about the batman warehouse scene a lot versus christopher nolan's batman fight scenes nolan edited it and cut it too much what i want in a fight scene is no edits no cuts zoom out and let me see what is unfolding and that is exactly what this does very very well 
not only is it aesthetically pleasing in the way that it gives you a clear view of the two central characters in this tale fighting side by side, but it is thematically rewarding as well. This, as I've said a few times, this is not manufactured for once. Them fighting on the same side in this moment towards a common goal is genuine. It is totally believable that they, for this moment, would be on the same side trying to do the same thing. And their connection is built up throughout this whole entire film. Exactly. And that lays the groundwork for this throne Exactly. Room. So it is both a payoff in terms of, all right, and this is where sort of that third act that I talk about loving starts is with yeah. this scene. It's amazing. I think what kicks it off and this is what I realized in retrospect. What kicks it off is that he kills Snoke, which one, I was not expecting to happen, especially- So cool in the moment. So cool in the moment. And we can say that, you know, in retrospect, maybe they shouldn't have killed Snoke and he should have continued to be the bad guy, but really cool in the moment. And yet after essentially saving her life, saying like, I want to be with you, you know, like we have a connection and something's going on here. He still is like rule the galaxy with me. And I thought, especially in my rewatch, now having all three films, it was a very cool moment where I'm like, wow, he's making progress, but he's not ready yet to be the man he always could have been. And that's why it works for me, because it's not fake. If it were fake, they'd be like, all right, let's team up. He understood that Ray was only useful to him in that moment. Besides that, his goal remained the same. But he I, mean, knew, I still think he cared about her, but he wanted her on his terms. But he understood that I need her. We, her and I, need to kill Snoke right now. It, yeah. was, not about, it was not about him wanting to team up with her. It, it was about him wanting to kill Snoke. That was the basis of his choice. He would have killed Snoke if her life wasn't at risk in that moment. Like if she was off on his some His ultimate other- goal was to end Snoke and take charge. Yes. I could see that. But I also think protect saving her life played a role. I think that maybe accelerated what is- Oh, see, I never really picked up on that thematically. I thought it was strictly a grab for power. He hears Snoke talking all that shit on him, talking all that shit on her. I see his mind. I see his every intent. Yes. I see him turning the lightsaber to strike true. child he ignites it and kills his true enemy him realizing like bro you aren't that much stronger than me like i could kill you right now what the fuck are we doing here then i'm in charge so i think in that moment he realized oh now's my chance Let's do this. He does realize that, but I don't think he would have maybe pulled the trigger had it not been her life at stake. Because the whole entire film is that basically them building a connection and him realizing not only does she kind of understand me, she also has sympathy for me, which nobody else has right now. So I think that was maybe the final push. I don't think he was letting her die no matter what. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But all of it works, regardless of which stand it is you, you take and which opinion you have on that scene. It all still works. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and if you don't think that that scene works, then... Tweet at us at PostCredPod. Yes, and we'll argue a, with that is a much nicer way of saying it, Brandon. <laughs> All right, this is, this is a little bit similar. Put this in the Jedi Temple Award. And this goes for one element of these films that 
we want to preserve above all else. And while mine, my answer isn't necessarily the most important or most touching uh, moment in Star Wars, I do think it's a great, great example of what it can be moving forward from a kind of technical standpoint. And that what will be, like we talked about before, Admiral Holdo's self-sacrifice Star Destroyer move. Wow! What a choice! I did not expect that! What a choice! So this is why it's the single most striking visual element in the entire Star Wars franchise, bar none. It is beautiful, and it stands out in your memory. It's seared into your brain. I can picture it without, you know, regardless of the rewatch, I can always picture exactly what it looks like and doesn't sound like because it's so unbelievably unique. Uh, They say that TV is a writer's medium, and film is a director's medium. And that is because the big screen offers moments of visually stunning scale that simply cannot be replicated anywhere. And this moment, love or hate the movie, is phenomenal. It's so creative and so unlike every, anything we've ever seen in the Star Wars franchise. So I think that's something that needs to be kept in mind from an aesthetic standpoint moving forward. And Taika Waititi, who's doing the 2023 movie, who is a nice visual director in his own right, I think he'll definitely throw in some cool pizzazz like that. That's a great call. I did not <laughs> expect you to say that at all. It was enough. Yeah, I was going left field on that one, but I think it's well-deserved. I'll notice we're talking a lot about TLJ here. What's your point? A lot of your more iconic moments are coming from TLJ. I'm not necessarily saying The Force Awakens is better. I stick to my my point that I oft repeat. More consistent. The Last Jedi, is its highs are higher, which is very important, but its lows are lower, which is also important. So for me, and this here is as... And listen, just a quick inter- interjection. Ryan Johnson is a significantly more ambitious visual director than J.J. Abrams. That's not a criticism against Abrams, who I think has done a lot of really cool stuff. But, I mean, Ryan Johnson is known for Why, that. you don't think that lens flares are, are the peak of uh, <laughs> he has cinematic... Down. He has calmed down on that from his early movies. But, yes, he is a big fan of the lens flare. So, for mine is, it's from the throne room scene. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> this is as cinematic as Star Wars has ever been. As I've said a lot on this podcast, I like the idea of Star Wars more than Star Wars itself. But this moment is Star Wars boiled down into its purest form. When Kylo Ren kills Snoke and he force pulls the lightsaber towards him and Ray's hand shoots up to grab it and she looks up and it slows down time because it's all going so fast. She looks at him in a combination of what the fuck did you just do? Thank you. (laughs) Now what? In one moment, but just that visual of her hand again in this red room, really popping up to snatch her blue saber out of the air. And then to look back at him and, to finally realize that her opinions on him, she kept saying, I could sense the conflict in you. You're going to turn. You're going to turn. In that moment, for those feelings to not only be validated, but to do so in a moment that saved her life, beautiful shit. Really cool. That's why everything with Rey and Kylo in The Last Jedi is great. I am willing to say that this scene, that this shot, outside of a thorough Rogue One rewatch is my favorite Star Wars shot of all time. 
I think that segues perfectly into the next category, which is the Rebel Alliance Award for the best hero moment, because we're kind of talking about heroic moments right now. <laughs> Mine is another Ray Force lightsaber moment, but it's from The Force Awakens when- this is one of mine too as well. Okay, so this, uh, man, every lightsaber battle should be in snow from henceforth. <laughs> it was really cool. Gorgeous. The way that the light refracts off of their faces and the snow around them is just... Which is not easy to do in terms of the actual technical filmmaking. Like, they had to, like, brighten the toy lightsabers that they used and, like, really get a serious glow going and then had to add to it in post-production. Yeah. That's not... I saw this whole cool video on it. It's just amazing. And then that moment of her, A, she realizes, like, holy shit, I've got the force. <laughs> She's like, oh, well, now I've got this saber. Like, let's battle, son. Awesome, awesome moment. That film I don't think has a lot of highs, at least not the same amount of highs as The Last Jedi. Of course, that's by design, the start of the arc and not the end. But this moment is, at this moment, you're thinking, Disney might have something here. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of my moments as well. My entire theater went absolutely nuts. I went absolutely nuts. It was a rousing hero moment. And my second one, which is related in which we were just talking about, was when Kylo Ren kills Supreme Leader Snoke and helps save Rey's life. Both moments were relatively unexpected big exclamation point type of moments within the films and the choices by our characters. It doesn't work if they don't also have like a thematic and emotional weight behind it. It can get by on coolness for sure. But I think the reason those moments stand with us and why we're selecting them here is that they were turning points for Ray, for Kylo or Ben, which we might start calling him at around that time that he made that choice. So yeah, man, those are just awesome our next category is what's the worst thing you can say about this movie and i think you've already set the set the groundwork for your answer a little bit that they almost killed star wars i mean i know i don't know okay. i know that's an impossible thing to do but the reaction to think about this rise of skywalker grossed the least of these three films the culminative chapter it doesn't matter. Forget about that. Think about the context, as we've, we've been saying. The culminative chapter of the most iconic Star Wars, uh, sorry, of the most iconic American film franchise of all time, its final chapter couldn't outgross its seventh chapter. That is, that is, Aquaman, which is still okay. my mind. So that is the sign of a poisoned product. That they lost returns with each film, even though the stakes are supposed to be growing. That is unforgivable. And while I'm not as much of a dollars man as you are, the decreasing box office of each film shows that people, they were literally driving people away. And, that, and that's a bad thing. It'll be interesting to see where they go from here put it like that because they because now the same way that we talk about the mcu and how we could try and now i trust them with every choice they make disney and star wars now find themselves in the exact inverse they have to re-earn their trust now the worst thing i think i can say about these movies 
is that they are a collection of recycled elements that fail to create something new on their own. And then there are new elements that deliver very mixed results. I think Lucasfilm's lack of forethought resulted in a relatively hastily put together trilogy over you know, a very compressed timeline. And they, they, these movies were somewhat constructed on the fly rather than fine tuned over time. Uh, ultimately, I don't think they were franchise killing disasters that some fanboys claim it to be, but I do think they are a rather vanilla middle of the road conclusion to the biggest cinematic franchise in American history and that they left a galaxy's worth of potential on the table. That's me. Boom. All right. So that's the worst things we can say after a discussion that I think actually has been very even handed. We've pointed out a lot of positives and a lot of negatives for sure. The best thing you could say about these movies. I'd say that if you're a kid and that is who these films are for, if you're a kid, then this was a equally exciting entryway into the world of Star Wars as the OG films were. I don't think kids think about the things that we talked about on this podcast. I think Great. these films, at the end of the day, succeeded in their goal. And their goal was to make bread. And I will also say that Rise of Skywalker is not as bad as I previously thought. But again, this was a super low bar. I mean, I thought that this movie was... Because, right, you go into it thinking, all right, The Last Jedi was pretty cool. They did some good stuff. This is the end of, you know, we grew up with this shit. And so you go into it thinking, all right, I am expecting something that is Endgame-esque. That should have been their bar, right? I mean, if you're talking about a bar for where Star Wars should set, it's Endgame-type shit. And when you compare... The Rise of Skywalker with Endgame, it's it's laughable. But in in a vacuum, that film itself is not that bad. So on the whole, I'd say the best thing that I could say about these films is they are what you want them to be. If you want them to be this fun, in-and-out romp, then that is there for you to enjoy. If you want them to push the boundaries of what Star Wars could be, like I think you and I want, then sometimes it succeeds in that and sometimes it fails. You could find ways to either hate it or love it. Yeah. And I genuinely think my reaction here and my answer is falling under the same umbrella as yours. I don't think any of these three movies fail to entertain in and of themselves. There might be stretches you don't like, but I believe all three have long stretches of goodness within them that can be quite fun and enjoyable and compelling and entertaining. And I compare this sequel trilogy to something like the Hobbit trilogy or the Star Wars prequels, and those are flat out unwatchable for the majority of their running times, in my opinion. So I think when you judge them- In terms of other, yeah, other franchise comparisons, you can say that this was a win. You know, overall, these were massively successful commercial blockbusters. All three grossed over a billion worldwide. They infused a little Indiana Jones into Star Wars with this kind of swashbuckling, adventurous fun and humor, which the other ones didn't really have. Uh, They reintroduced Star Wars to existing fans and created generations of new ones. And at the end of the day, I am glad they exist. And I would say that the lead up 
and delivery of the force awakens was a hugely awesome pop culture period of time in my life that i really really loved and enjoyed and appreciated and had a lot of fun with so overall i mean the hype of that first trailer forget about it dude great and and i was someone who walked out of the force awakens being like you know what that gave me pretty much every but everything i wanted and needed and again retroactively finishes a little bit but i still really really like that movie and it segues perfectly into our next question if you catch these movies on cable cable are you watching for me force awakens definitely last jedi if it's not the canto bite scenes i will if it is no and rise of skywalker i'll check it out for a little bit but not a super long time so for me it depends on a which one it is b where in the film it is and c how long has it been since i've last seen it yeah that's fair <laughs> so that's, that, sort that, of it. That, that's an important element for any movie if i just saw this yesterday i'm probably not but if <laughs> i like catch like the last jedi in the third act i'm crushing it b you know that <laughs> you know that now before we go i thought it would be good to for us to rank all of the disney era star wars films not just the sequel trilogy okay shoot go ahead slick i would say and Prior to this rewatch, I had Force Awakens and Rogue One on the same level as my favorites. As we've discussed in our text, my rankings have now changed upon this rewatch. I say Rogue One number one. By a distance or no? Yeah. And I still really love The Force Awakens, which is my number two. But Rogue One slaps. You're right. (laughs) So I'm going to go Rogue One, Force Awakens, Last Jedi... Rise of Skywalker, Solo. Okay. That's my Disney-era Star Wars films okay. rankings as of now. I'm going to go, go with Rogue One. I'm going to take the last hour and a half of The Last <laughs> Jedi. No, you got to look at them as whole t- pieces. You, you, can't, you can't split them up. All right, I'm going to take Rogue One. Uh, I'm going to take The Last <laughs> Jedi, because as you and I said, it's highs are highs, and you and I are the type who respect people for trying something different i do and so i give that even though i totally agree with your point that at times it really bottoms out and isn't consistent as the film that came before it's sheer boldness yeah gives it that claim so then way more on its mind than the force awakens i concede that wholeheartedly and the distance between the two continues to shrink every time i rewatch them for me so then third i'm gonna go force awakens then fourth i'm going with rise of skywalker and fifth i'm going with solo which isn't the worst thing in the world it's just so utterly forgettable all right well i think that's quite fair man well, and then one more quick ranking in honor of our boy marty what is your favorite film of his of all time not named goodfellas <sighs> yeah because you're fucking you're, you're so goodfellas yeah, no, no kidding dude i mean i i favorite or best favorite favorite okay because there's a difference i believe oh of course there is well i, I mean I believe, you, you uh, can say both if you want i i believe my favorite film of martin scorsese's after goodfellas is probably and this is blasphemous to to baby boomers but it's probably a tie between the departed and the wolf of wall street if we're talking about best i mean it's really hard not to say taxi drivers up there or raging bull is up there i also love the king of comedy which is one of his more divisive 
uh, entries in, in his filmography. Yeah, so for best, I think you got to go with Taxi Driver. I don't see how you don't. Um, but for favorite, I'm going with Shutter Island because I contest <laughs> because I contest that the first time that you watch that, and if you, if for some reason you are tuning into this podcast and you haven't seen that movie, I've just made your plans for you tonight because that the first time that you watch that film is one of the all time mindfuck films i've ever seen and that's sort of a problem right because once you know the twist it loses that edge but that first time i would i mean you've got marty leo and mindfox what more can you want in a movie and ruffalo and ben kingsley amazing i kind of knew the twist going in oh really see i didn't know I remember that year, those couple months. It's like, where does Shutter Island end and Inception begins? Because these are both Leo mindfuckery. Yeah, yeah. What a run. What a run. All right. Well, that does it for us on this week's post-credit pod. This was a, a meaty Star Wars conversation. Maybe one of my favorite pods that we've done. I just think that was a great, hey, here are the negatives, here are the positives, and here are really good arguments this for both. Deep. Yeah, this was deep. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Be sure to tune in Friday when we tackle the next new episode of Mandalorian. Eric, you want to leave them with any parting words of wisdom? Do-do, 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 (laughs) do-do. He is a one-man Mando theme song generator. All right, y'all. I'll see you Friday. Later. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 